Hey everybody, it's Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, formerly with Survivor and of 38 Special Fame, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream Podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. Today, it is my honor to have as my guest Felix Cavalier, one of the greatest musicians to come out of the 1960s. He was the co-founder, a lead singer, and the Hammond B3 player for the Rascals one of my favorite bands of all time. You know, it was illegal to grow up in New York City and not love the Rascals. Felix co-wrote and sang lead on some of the most iconic songs of the era. And in our song fest in the second half of this episode, we're going to play and talk about a bunch of them. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and the Miller Hall of Fame. And my featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it at the end as well, is my song called Yeah Yeah from the album PGS7 by my band Project Brand Slam. And I chose this song because it's got a New York kind of funky groove to it. And to me, Felix and the Rascals will always personify that New York groove. So, Felix Cavalier, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thanks, man. Thanks. Good to meet you. You bet. You know, you've really been on this podcast three times already. You don't even know it. Okay. The first time was when I had Mark Stein from the Vanilla Fudge on. And Mark told this story about how when he was getting ready and was growing up, he was like, he, he would sit at your feet and watch you play the Hammond organ in the different clubs. I mean, you were his hero as he was getting ready to explode on the scene. So that was the first time. The second time was when I was interviewing a guy named Robbie Robinson, who oh, yeah. is Frankie Valley's musical director. And he's a big, big Hammond guy. Tells me he's got 12 Hammond organs. I can't even believe it. And uh, he's telling me that, you know, when he was growing up, he had two heroes on the Hammond and you were one of those two heroes. So you made the cut in that episode as well. And yeah. then I just interviewed, Joey D, oh, yeah. Joey D and the Starlighters. And Joey D told the story, and I want you to, I want to know if this is true, that he found you playing in a place called the Choo Choo Room. And he asked you to join the Starlighters. And you and Eddie Brigatti and Gene Cornish, you all came in and you were Starlighters for a time. So do I have these stories right? Well, except for that's not the place that he found me. He, <laughs> they found me, he found me at the Raleigh Hotel in the Catskill Mountains. Really? Yeah. And uh, basically what happened is uh, I was working there for a summer with a band that I had from uh, college. I was in Syracuse University. And so he came in as a headliner on one of the weekends. And then about about a month later, when school was about to start, I got a call from his manager saying that their organ player had quit and they were in Europe. And I don't know if you know this story, but this is a great story. And so they, they, they needed a replacement. So 
instead of going back to school, I went to Frankfurt, Germany, joined up with these, this, this band called Joey D and the Starlighters. The next thing I know, we're appearing in a club and the opening act was called the Beatles. <laughs> and this was before they came to the United States. So nobody really knew them over here. So yeah, jo Joey's and, and his, and his people, they, they kind of found me. Yeah. So yeah, Joey did tell me the story about how the Beatles opened for him and you yes. were in the band at the time, huh? Yes. And it was in Europe and, and, uh, in Sweden as well. And, uh, that really kind of cemented my, uh, you know, change of plan. Uh, instead of being in college pre-med, uh, I decided to go into the uh, crazy world of music. That is crazy. Okay, so you played at the Raleigh Hotel, huh? That's that's where they found me. That's All right, because I, I played one summer at the Olympic Hotel in South Fallsburg. I yeah. was in the show band at the Olympic the year of Woodstock. You know, so listen, for anybody that doesn't know the Catskill Mountains, there used to be all these great hotels there. And all the hotels had marvelous show bands and they had rock and roll bands. I happened to play in the show band at the Olympic Hotel, which was just fabulous because every night there'd be another act that would come through. And it was always a singer and then a comedian. I, I mean, it was like an experience, uh, you know, like, I don't know if there was always comedians there was Latin bands, right? There was rock and roll. Well, the rock and roll came later because there was always singers and it was fun. It was really fun, you know, and, and for a kid like me, it was an introduction to this world of music that uh, it, it just really, it really was a blast. Fantastic. All right. So I want to go back a little bit. I, you were born in Pelham, right? You grew up in Pelham, New York. Well, I grew up there. I was born in New York City. Yes. OK. Yeah. You got that New York vibe. OK. Oh, yeah. I asked my guests on this because, you know, this is the follow your dream podcast. So I always want to know, was it your dream when you were young to be a musician? Not really. No, uh, basically, you know, I grew up in a, in a family of medical people. And, uh, you know, as I say, the, the, the way I was pointed was, was more or less to follow those footsteps uh, uh, into the medical world. But uh, my mom, rest her soul, had a, had an idea uh, of, of my musical talent to, to uh, enroll me into a, a classical music school for many, many years. For eight years, I did classical music. I think, you know, the idea was to become a classical pianist, but that really, it never really, in other words, it wasn't really a career in those days to be in, in, in certainly in the entertainment industry in my family. There was no such thing. So it wasn't a dream. It just kind of happened. Okay. Did anybody in your family play music? Were your parents musical? Well, I, not not that I'm aware of. I mean, there was somebody in the, in the in the in the immediate family that you know played as a hobby, but no nobody was a was a professional musician that I'm aware of. Interesting. But they wanted you to play music. Good for them. Well, because she saw that I had this talent. You know, when you give your kid piano lessons, you know, if you see something there. You know, you you embellish it, you know, and she did because I mean, I had three, three classes a week for eight years. Wow. So I, it really uh, impeded on my social life <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my athletic life. And, and, you know, I wanted to go out and play with, with, with my friends, you know, and have. But I started at five, you know, and uh, literally until she passed, which was, you know, unfortunately, when I was 13, that's all I all I did was classical music. So I got a really good, you know, basis in music. 
You know, no, in answer to your question, no, I, I really had no idea that I was going to be in the music industry. All right, you're going to be a doctor, but that I didn't was, work that out. Was huh? my, that was my plan. That was, you know, that was the route I was taking. Yeah. All right. And until you played with Joey D, then you decided, forget the doctor. I want to be a, a rock and roll musician, huh? Well, I saw the Beatles, you know, and I saw all these girls going crazy. I said, this looks, <laughs> I may want to try this, you know. This yeah, like why not? So what was it like? What were they like when you when you heard them you know, opening for you guys? Did you did you know that they had that it factor? Oh, you had to uh, basically, you know, and I've repeated this before, you know, first of all, I never had seen guys with long hair before like this. Second of all, as I say, the, the audience, the crowd was bananas. The only word. I mean, it was just, you know, you'd never really seen anything like that or heard anything like that. Because, you know, you go to a club, people are sitting in their chairs. They're not screaming their lungs out, you know. Right. So it was it was a really interesting experience because in the United States, they were going to find this out in, in about, oh, maybe six months, uh, you know, when, he, when they did the Ed Sullivan show. Right. But prior to that, I, I think, you know, Elvis, I think they did that before, but that, I was a little young for that. But anyway, the point I'm saying for, from the musical point of view, I thought they were more of a singing group than a band. You know, their singing was very powerful. Their 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 musical expertise was, was OK. But, you know, as, as you know, especially when they played American music, it really left a little... Uh, you know, gap for me because they they did they didn't have that feeling of R and B. They were imitating. Yeah, uh, you know they they were they were they were imitating, uh, but they have a, they have a, a, a very distinct way. Like if you listen to uh, John Lennon's uh, version of you know some of the uh, uh, you know twist and shouts and stuff that they did that was American. They didn't have the syncopation. Syncopation, you know, comes from like the Mediterranean and the Latin. You right. know, there's no doubt about it. However, when they did their songs, you knew that magic was in the room. You know, when they did like their, their uh, I want to hold your hand uh -huh. and, you know, the rhythms that they were doing, it was different, you know, and so it spoke immediately to you that there was really something happening. That must have been something else to be there at that time. As I say, looking at it as a musician and, and, and looking at it as, as, you know, I guess somebody who was at least contemplating being in this business, you know, because don't forget, we had, we had to deal in those years with the draft. Right. You know, when you leave school, if you're unmarried, you're going places. But, yeah. you know. <laughs> Not you places know. you want to go either. Exactly. So uh, there, there was a big decision for me to like leave and, and go out into this crazy world. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. Let's talk about this crazy world because you, at some point, you founded the Young Rascals. Okay, right. that was your original name, and you had those those Lord Fauntleroy outfits that you were wearing at the beginning. Tell us about the foundation and the and the founding of the Rascals. Well, you know, basically, what happened is, as I, as I just said, I, I had to clear my my uh, obligation to the United States Army. 
first before I could do anything. So I, I was working out in Las Vegas. I was working with a, with a group out there that was a, a backing a female singer in the lounges at the Desert Inn. And I got drafted. And so to make a long story short, in, in the early days, they were a lot more choosy uh, than, than they were later. And they didn't really think, you know, to put it bluntly, that I was, you know, the, the type of person they were looking for. So they classified me as one Y. This means if there's a nuclear event, we'll call you. Otherwise, stay home. <laughs> Other um, than that, we don't bother you. <laughs> I had long hair, and they didn't know what the heck I was. You know, I mean, you know, it was it's a whole experience. I've written a book, and I got I got some of this in my book. But you know, I, I mean, it was it was it was a really crazy experience. You know, well, after I was so passed on, I won't say rejected, but passed on. I decided, I, well, now I can now I can do it. Now I can start a band. And as Joey told you, I was working in, he had a nightclub in New York for a brief time called the Starlighter. And I was working there with three other guys, two of them, which became rascals, Eddie Brigatti and Gene Cornish. The drummer I found through a, a lady that I was seeing at the time who took me to see this, this fantastic musician called Dino Donnelli uh, at the place called the Metropole. And um, I said, man, this is this is the guy. So, you know, uh, it worked out well because, you know, he, the drummer that we had uh, didn't want to take a chance because this was all speculation, obviously. So I was able to put the band together. And, and the good thing is that within six months, we had a record, which is unheard of today. But I'm saying within six months, you had an album or you had the single. No, we had a record deal contract or oh, record deal. Yeah. I, I mean, so in other words, we started and, you know, I'm very proud of that band because everybody was pretty good, you know? Oh yeah. And, 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 and so I, I, I felt that I was making the right decisions in the people that I was choosing, you know, cause a lot, a lot of bands have one person in the band that really, it stands out. We had four people that stood out. We had four people, exception of Eddie. Eddie was a little young to have his own band, but he was certainly a talent. We had four people that people would look at and zero in on on stage. Gene Cornish had his band, came from Rochester, New York, and uh, he came to New York to make it, you know, and then he hit, you know, what, what happens in New York when the reality hits that, you know, your band's not quite up to the level. Eddie's brother was part of Joey D's band, his brother, David. So Eddie was a phenomenal singer. Dino was, was just so exciting to watch on the drums, you know. And, and so, you know, I was real proud to have people like this with me, you know, and uh, I still am, even though, like, you know, we have a kind of a strange relationship now. Well, listen, it's been a long time, but you guys were magnificent together. I mean, the Rascals really were one of the great bands of that era. I am proud of that band, too. As I say, they, they rocked. You know, it's, it's just unfortunate that as human beings, uh, we left a little to be desired. <laughs> you know, it's awfully tough to be together for as long as like the Rolling Stones are together. OK, well, you know, I mean, but, you know, as, as a rule, I, I really find that the English bands, for the most part, are really a lot more business, intelligent, organized, realistic then the American band, we're kind of spoiled over here in the United States. Oh, I'll get another band. No, you won't. You're not going to get magic. Magic happens once in your life. You know, if you're lucky enough to have it once in your life, 
hold on to it. Well, let's go to the magic, okay? Because in the second half of this interview, I love to do what I call a song fest, okay? So right now, underneath us is your first number one hit, which was Good Lovin'. You know, for three chords and that little Hammond solo that you play in there, which is iconic. Everybody loves that song and that solo. I mean, it was just a wonderful song when it burst on the market. Tell us about that. Well, in the uh, early 60s, you know, which is kind of late 60s is when we kind of came into the recording world, you had to work in clubs. The clubs demanded that you do what they call covers. For those who don't know, covers are songs that have already been released by artists. They're not your you know, creations. They really weren't interested uh, until people like Dylan and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Beatles and Stones and uh, and people writing their own material. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted you to get up and dance. They wanted to sell liquor. And uh, I I went on a, a search to find uh, obscure songs that I could prove were covers that we could put into our repertoire that the people would like. And I found many of them, two of which, you know, are, are standards today. One is Mustang Sally. I found that before Wilson Pickett and all those guys found that I found it and I found good loving. And as a rule, we put those into our set. And, you know, there's nothing like playing for a live audience to see whether you got a hit or not. Immediately, people got up and danced immediately. They still do. I go into good loving today. Everybody's out of their seat. So it was a, it was just an amazing scene because that's the wonder, wonder of, of playing live, you know. You know, until you just said it, I did not know. All these years, I did not know. You're telling me that Good Lovin' is a cover, huh? Correct. Now, who did the original? Well, the, there, there was quite a few, but the one that I heard was by the Olympics. Okay, I got to look this up, okay? Uh, well, they, they, but I found out uh, uh, over the years that there was there were more than that prior to that. You know, and of course, they didn't do it like we did it. You know, they didn't they didn't do it like, you know, a, a rock and roll band of maniacs. They did it. To, <laughs> as a matter of fact, the Olympics almost had like a, a cha-cha group. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when you hear something, you know, and then you interpret it into your, you know, 
genre, so to speak, your, your musical genre. Because, you know, it's funny because, you know, like we said earlier in the conversation, you said, well, I, I, I hear your New York accent. Well, the same thing happens when you take a song that you think is a Beatles song and you play it with the Rascals. It's no longer a Beatles song. It's a Rascal, it's a Rascal song. song because of the interpretation. I totally agree. So that's what happened. You know, I do the same thing on all of my band's albums. Uh, my era was that whole British invasion era, too. Right. Okay. And I would take an iconic song from one of the bands there, whether it was Cream or The Who or Hendrix, and I would reimagine it and it would come out as one of our songs. And where did I learn that? I learned it really from two places, which you're going to know. First of all, hearing Joe Cocker at Woodstock do that wonderful, you know, version of With a Little Help from My Friends where he made that song his own. It was a completely different song. Absolutely. And then when the fudge did, you know, you keep me hanging on and totally changed it. You know, it just showed you that you can take a song, make it your own, like you just said, and make it into a completely new hit. Well, you know, again, this was kind of the way things happened because you had to do that to work in nightclubs. Uh, in, 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 because don't forget the drinking age was 21, you know, and the wildness really had not started of people doing their own, you know, uh, I got to tell you all about my divorce and, you know, like I got to tell you about my dog dying. And, you know, <laughs> this wasn't around. We, we basically did, you know, there's the songs that were around them. They were about love. You know what I mean? You know, they, they, they were fun. You know what I mean? They were crazy ones. They were, but, you know, it's that part of the world, the songwriting part of the world that I'm most proud of being part of. Well, let's go to the next one, okay? Because this was another number one hit of yours, and I'm talking about grooving. Grooving on a Sunday afternoon. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, don't forget the Latin influence, both in the Catskills and in, in New York City. Huge. You know, in subsequent years, they, they, they found out that the tremendous musical uh, contribution of the Latin you know, population of the United States of America. Well, I knew about that for years because they were freaking great, man. I mean, they would come up and I'd hear these bands, uh, La Playa Sextet. You know, I, I, I said, what are you kidding me? These guys are great. Yep. You know, so that conga, you know, they call it by own groove was in my soul. You know what I'm saying? So the story behind the song, there's always a story behind the song. Grooving on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I tell it like this. I was I was very, very much in love with a with a with a with a, a younger younger woman who basically, you know, we work on Friday and Saturday nights. There's no going out with your girlfriend, uh, you know. So what's left? You know, Sunday afternoon. Let's groove on a Sunday afternoon. So that that's the the the, the, the you know the, the sort of like lyrical content of that song. It's about, but the music part of it is definitely Latin uh, oriented. As a matter of fact, Atlantic freaked out when we didn't have a drummer on. 
<laughs> what are you guys doing? What are you crazy? You know, it's, it's just a great story, which you know I love to tell. There was a disc jockey, Murray Kaufman. You know, Murray the K. Murray the K. Murray the K happened to be in the room when we were recording that. Really, you know, he was a good friend, man, and and rest his soul, he was a, he was a great guy. He said, "What are you crazy?" He he went over to Jerry Wexler and let he said, "I'll put that on the air now, right now," you know, and he did. It was number one for six weeks in New York City. You know, they, the, all the record guys, they all want what was the, the hit before until they get a new hit. And then they want that one, you know, as the next the next song. It, it, so I'm so glad that you went in that direction because it was a change of pace for the Rascals, right? To do grooving. Well, first of all, look, look what we were up against if coming from England. Those guys changed the pace every time they, they wrote a song. Yeah. I mean, they they really opened the door for so much creative uh, talent to be heard because, you know, you take, for example, I'm sure, you know, you're going to get to how can I be sure eventually, you know? How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can I be sure where I stand with you? Could I show never have happened if it wasn't for yesterday and Michelle? That's true. Never have happened because the radio stations had to play the Beatles. They had to play it. They didn't want to play that kind of stuff. They had to. So when we came out with a song, which was, you know, three, four, six, eight time, you know, and it had like a French theme, you played it. See, so, you know, the, the contribution that they made, I'm talking about Beatles, of course, to, to, uh, Pop music uh, histories—it's—it's beyond beyond explanation. They opened it up for everybody, is what you're saying, everybody. and it's true. Everybody, it's and, true. and most people who are from our generation back then—they'll tell you the same story. Yeah, these are the guys that they—they they said, "Wow, yeah, man, we could do this. This is great." All right, gotta ask you a question. You mentioned Murray the K. Murray the K. For anybody that doesn't know, was one of the great disc jockeys in New York City along with cousin Brucey, who was on this podcast uh, as my first guest, by the way. Right. And uh, Murray, the K used to do these shows at the Brooklyn Paramount theater. And then in New York city at, in Manhattan. And I think I saw you guys on the rascals on one of those shows. And there was an, the, the, the band at the bottom of the bill. Okay. The last band on the bill was a band called cream. And the next one up the line was a band called the who, that's exactly right. You got it, my man. Absolutely. Those were the days, my friend. Could the you, imagine, the could you yeah. imagine having a bill like that today? Yeah, you know what the price of ticket was? About a buck and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, right. Those were fun, man. You know, 
But, you know, Murray was big, big, big uh, news because of the fact that, you know, he, he was he was like a radio station. Uh, they play your song, you know, and same with Brucey, you know, who I'm still in touch with. I still love him, man. You know, I mean, these people really helped uh, make our, our careers. Yes. And look, radio was much more adventurous at that time. And then FM came into being and FM would play album cuts and, you know, experimental things. Unfortunately, nowadays, music is so narrow and certainly with the promoters, you know, everything. I talk about this before in the podcast. Everything has to be homogenous. OK, I remember going to the Fillmore East and seeing Miles Davis opening for The Who. OK, you don't yeah. see stuff like that anymore. The demographics. Well, you know, I mean, not not to throw sawdust on the hippie world, but uh, Woodstock killed it. That was the end of it. Interesting. Why do you say that? Corporations. They all of a sudden realize there's a huge market out there for these baby boomers. Let's go get it. Yeah. Well, who's running our radio stations? Who's running our record companies? Corporations. Yeah. Now, prior to that, there were all these independent. Most of the labels were Atlantic. They were all independent guys trying to, you know, trying to make a friggin' hit for God's sake. You know what I'm saying? And now they, they buy them. It's a different world. That's for sure. A different world. I mean, payola is legal. It's called advertising. <laughs> Very simple. Good idea though. I got to give them credit. <laughs> <laughs> by time, I buy time, right? Yep. All right. Let's go on to the third song. This is your, another top 10 song of yours called a beautiful morning. Just a lovely, lovely song. It's a beautiful, Tell us a little bit what was the behind the scenes on this one. Well, very, very simply, uh, you know, the uh, the inspiration behind that was com complete bliss, love, badly in love. We had number one records in Hawaii. I said, man, got to put this down on paper. <laughs> got to put this down on tape. Got to put this feeling that is right now into a, 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 a piece of work that people can relate to with this this kind of like emotion every time they hear it and that's that's how beautiful morning came about it was total joy and again it was it was a different kind of sound from the other tunes that we've just talked about you know you guys evolved well we also i also had a a a mentor there at atlantic records uh, by the name of arif mardine who was the jazz guy well he 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 he, he could do anything you know, he he uh, he was like one of these uh, musical kind of geniuses that, you know, like uh, basically it, it's like as if you had a a, a, a thesaurus or an encyclopedia of music standing right next to you. You say, I got this idea. What do you think of this? And all of a sudden the flower starts blooming into this. You know what I'm saying? So he encouraged because, you. 
Well, he also was, was was the same as George Martin was with the Beatles. In other words, you got an idea, but you want to hear what this idea could sound like? Yes. Yes. Well, let's do it. So we would do it, you know, kind of like I go to his house and we we do these arrangements. And I go like, wow, yeah. You know, because he was starting to become a producer with us. See, because we produced ourselves. We I, I wanted to produce that band from the get go. And. God gave us this guy in the room <laughs> who made that not only possible, but magical because he, he became such a well-known producer, but yep. we were one of the first acts that he had anything to do with. Look, Atlantic was, you know, right in the forefront of those, of all the labels back then. They took more chances, I think, than almost any other label. And uh, good for you that you were with them. Oh, it was magic over there, man. You know, they they uh, uh, they were really I don't know if you've ever had any. I don't there's they're, none of them are live anymore, but the Atlantic story should be broadcast. It's a, a phenomenal story. Totally. You know, I don't want to take your time with that because uh, this is about me. But it, it, if anybody there's there's books on Atlantic Records uh, and Amit Erdogan, Erdogan and his yeah. brother, uh, you should read that because it's, it's a quite a story. Yeah, it really was. Okay, last song in our song fest is um, another one of your big, big hits. People got to be free, okay, which you know really captured the emotions of the time. All the world, all the So tell us about that. Well, I was working uh, for Bobby Kennedy's uh, campaign. And uh, matter of fact, a a lady that I was seeing at the time was present at the uh, horrible assassination at that uh, hotel out in uh, California. And uh, I I was on vacation, as a matter of fact, when that when when that happened, and I, I just I just felt compelled to say something, you know, to do something, write something. Uh, and that's what came out was people got to be free. I was really an emotional time for those of us, you know, that, I mean, when you, when you work for somebody's campaign, every, everybody gets really, really, really involved. And especially in those days, cause I think our generation was, was really involved. You know, we really wanted to make a difference in changing, you know, what we think thought should be, I don't want to say the word liberal because I'll, I'll lose half my audience, <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to make it a more like universal kind of like world, you know, uh, where, you know, all men are created equal and women too. Very simple. 
you know, and uh, he was part of that dream that many of us had. You know, it, it was one of the songs of that era that I call a message song, okay? It was about freedom, about personal freedom. It was in the, in the context of the civil rights movement that you released that song. And I like to write message songs myself, okay? But there are so many artists these days that just avoid any controversy. They don't take a stand on anything. I happen to think that it's an obligation of, of artists to take a stand on social issues. And you must feel the same way. It's a mitzvah. <laughs> we need it. Now you can't, I mean, look, you know, you, you got to realize, I mean, seriously, this is a business, whether we like it or not, you know, and I've had record executives tell me, we'd love to have you on a label. We don't want any messages. Literally tell you that I don't want any messages. So, you know, look at the Dixie Chicks, what happened with them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. So the way our world is right now, the way our country is right now, and I say this on stage because I also wrote a song called A Ray of Hope. Yep. And I say, you know, before I introduced that song, I remember when you used to be able to write songs without pissing anybody off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, it's very difficult to do that. It really is. You know, you, you, lose, you lose your audiences and the record company will go absolutely bananas. You know, so what do you do? What do you do? Yeah, but, you know, artists like yourself and Dylan and the Beatles and so many others, they said what was in their hearts and they said what was in their minds. And you know what? These became iconic songs. And I still think if you got the goods, if you've got a great song, all right, maybe it's going to piss off some people the hell with them. Well, it's yeah, but I mean, like I say, you know, today, today's a whole different world. And, and you you really have to you, you, you got to think, of course, a lot of the artists that I uh, am surrounded by in Nashville. They milk that. To become zillionaires. I got my American flag over here, you know what I'm saying, guys, this is over here and I'm telling over here with all the right things to say, you know, and you'll buy my records, you'll buy my stuff interesting concept yeah but you know back in the day like you were saying you know when dylan wrote a hard rains are gonna fall he wasn't thinking about how many records he was gonna sell no it's different i mean like i say it's a business it's it's it, i you know I, I used to do a lot of lectures at some of the you know musical universities at berkeley etc this is the music business it's the music please Put the capital B on that, because if you're not, you know, it's very difficult to make a living as it is in the music. <laughs> but get your, your 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 business chops together, you know, because you got it. You got to think like that. Now, if you want to come out and be a protest artist. I tell you something, man, you better have another gig on the side. <laughs> <laughs> because it's hard, you know, it really is. And, and people get angry now. They, they'll, they'll come at you. All right, Felix, tell everybody, what are you doing these days? Okay, what's what's in the future for Felix Cavalier? Well, I, I, I just I finished an album during the pandemic, you know, and I'm getting that out very shortly. And I, and I had a, a, an interesting concept there. It's called Now and Then. You know what I mean? Or Then and Now. What it is is old songs that, as you say, were covers that I redid, you know, stuff like Slip Away, Clarence Carter, stuff like that, and five new songs that kind of marry that idea, 
You know what I mean? I did Spanish Harlem and then I wrote a, a Latin type of groove song. So I got an album and I'm trying desperately to finish a book that uh, I, I've started working on a few years back. Uh, and, 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 and then I'm, I'm on the road, you know, I'm on the road. I've got a great band of, of musicians from Nashville and uh, we just go out and we, you know, we do cruises and we just rock and roll. We, you know, there's, there's not a sixties a, a artist or seventies artist that I know that doesn't still love to play. Hey, as long as they're around, as long as you can't play, that's the music everybody wants to hear. As long as the people stay alive out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We've been talking with Felix Cavalier of the Rascals, one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite musicians of all time. Felix, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. You were awesome. Thank you. I enjoyed being with you, man. And thank you. Uh, uh, I enjoyed your, your time. Terrific. Okay. And now we're going to hear again the song that I started playing underneath the introduction. It's my song called Yeah, Yeah. And I want to thank you all for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.